welcome to the ABCA's podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Brownlee. This episode is sponsored by our friends at Rapsodo. Rapsodo, the industry leader in baseball player development technology, has a special offer on their hitting and pitching 2.0 units. Go to rapsodo.com backslash savings and get up to $1,000 off. Trusted by the best in baseball, Rapsodo is used by all 30 MLB teams, 100% of Division I champions since 2010, and 100% of the top 100 prospects in this year's MLB draft. And 100% of the top 100 prospects in this year's MLB draft. Scott Brown, Vanderbilt's pitching coach and associate head coach, had this to say about Rapsodo. Everyone involved in teaching pitchers this day and age could benefit from owning Rapsodo and using it for immediate feedback to educate their pitchers. Again, save up to $1,000 when you decide to train and build champions with Rapsodo. Visit rapsodo.com backslash savings and take advantage of this great offer. This episode is sponsored by Netting Pros. Netting professionals are improving programs one facility at a time. Netting professionals specializes in the design, fabrication, and installation of custom netting for backstops, batting cages, dugouts, BP screens, and ball carts. They also design and install digital graphic wall padding, windscreen, turf, turf protectors, dugout benches, dugout cubbies, and more. Netting Professionals is an official partner of the ABCA and continues to provide quality products and services to many high school, college, and professional fields, facilities, and stadiums throughout the country. Netting Professionals are improving programs one facility at a time. Contact them today at 844-620-2707 or info at nettingpros.com. Visit them online at www.nettingpros.com or check out Netting Pros on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn for all their latest products and projects. Make sure to let CEO Will Miner know that the ABCA sent you. Now on to the podcast. We have a special edition of the ABCA podcast this week on the road with Texas A&M Associate Head Coach Nate Yeski during the Aggies pregame. This is a must-listen with one of the best pitching and baseball minds in the game. Coach Yeski led the Aggies to the 2022 College World Series in his first season in College Station. This was back-to-back trips for Coach Yeski in Omaha with Arizona competing in the 2021 College World Series. Coach Yeski is no stranger to Omaha as Oregon State's pitching coach for 11 seasons and the 2018 National Championship. Coach Yeski is one of the premier coaches we have in the game, so I'm excited for everyone to listen to this pregame conversation. I hope everyone enjoys this. Not too often you get this type of access for pregame. Garcia was here with his Aaron Judge jersey on at like 9 o'clock this morning, pacing in the hallway. Cage ball. Are you watching this Suarez for the Phillies? That's who you can be. Same body. Lefty. Got some throwback lefties now, too. Guy for the Yankees. Throwback. Nestor. Yes. I liked that that pick. I mean, his feet were so quick, and the arm just went like right to his ear. And Segura was over there having a party because he got a two RBI single. Oh, he's lucky that dropped 
pivot ball at second, didn't come back to haunt that last night. Took his eye off the ball. I'm convinced. I told somebody I'm convinced that the term timely hitting derived from the big leagues. And at no point in time is it more prevalent in this day and age because of arms being so good. But I said it the other night, and then ironically, Bregman hits the three-run homer. I said it's all based around, you know, a guy draws a walk, a guy gets a single, and now all of a sudden a guy pops a three-run homer, and there's breathing room. Or that's to put you ahead late, and it's like, all right, there, there it was. You don't see a lot like game two with Philadelphia and San Diego where a team jumps out for nothing and then the other team comes back and scores, what, seven unanswered or something? Well, the Indians had 15 hits and five runs. When's the last time you saw that in the big league game? Yeah, I was going to say college I saw that. <laughs> Never. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But see, their thing is, and that this is where the analytics comes into play, they don't impact the baseball. They put it in play, but they don't impact the ball. But for, for a guy like Stephen Kwan, that's who he is. Yeah. Like, he has to play on a team that has power, and he can bring his peskiness. Or Jeremy's background is in track and field. He ran and has trained track people in the past. And I remember when I was at Oregon State, I looked over one day in the dugout, and I go, stand next to Case, I go, Who's the guy in the glasses that's standing down there? It's night game. <laughs> He's got sunglasses on. Who's the guy in the sunglasses down there at the end of the dugout, Case? He goes, Jimmy? Case didn't have an affection for anybody with Oregon ties. And I go, you say his name like you know him, or even crazier like that you like him. He goes, I've known Jimmy for 40 years or whatever. He goes, we were at George Fox together. I go, really? And so I brought him up to Mac and this and that. And the purpose why I'm saying it is like Jimmy's background, he's kind of considered like the godfather of plyometrics, med balls and all this other stuff. And he's wrote old books that people still like try to hunt down and purchase to this day because it's the nuts and bolts of it are so spot on to what you need to do today. I really believe that if if you had more track and field influence in your pitchers, because Checkets did a good job with the arms when he was up there. Dean Stiles brought it back a little bit when there was, after the gap when, uh, gosh, Jason Dietrich was there. Um, Dean had some of Andrew's deals. Andrew was just more aggressive with it. But they always had skinny guys that moved fast with fast arms. And I'm like, you can't just recruit that guy. Like, there's, well, they were getting kids that were 87, 88 in high school, and all of a sudden, tunes up and he's 94-95 and you're like what I'm telling you it's a track influence there's there's something about the training never had a mid-90s arm that couldn't pick them up and put them down with their feet never had a big leverage base guys some with the feet and the faster feet make the arm how fast they can turn it on and yeah it makes their and some of that's fast twitch muscle and some of that stuff that they're more athletic we had some upper Midwest 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six kids that still could run a 6'5", six, 6'5". Like right now, we've got Hutch's kid here. It'll be mid to upper nines. 37 one day, maybe. He's up to four. Detmer, who was here yesterday, he's punched 99 a couple of times. And Debeck, 14, is a transfer from 
University of Washington. I saw them in high school up to 96. Really? Some other guys had them up to 97. But they're all kind of ballistic in nature and what they do and how they do it. Even Demmer, like, he creates some ground force. He's more leverage-based, but I kind of think if there's one more guy in there. Oh, Cortez. That's why he's, he's inside. He'll, he'll blitz a 7 or an 8 today. We won't, we, I don't know if we'll have track men on the board, but yeah. he came out in the first scrimmage and it was 96, 97, 98. And it was like first three pitches a game. Like, holy cow, man, what the hell are we doing here? The secondary stuff for me is what's so crazy nowadays. And I saw it in the NLCS and I've been watching it more since. Uh, the lefty that Jim just mentioned did it the other night. And somebody else. Another back-end reliever, I think is the other guy for the Phillies that closed last night. All three of them at some point have struck out a guy in the playoffs on a changeup. All of them 93 miles an hour. All of them Stupid. with all of them with the bat head out in front, like they're early. So some kids say, well, he throws a hundred. Well, that's not the point. The point is that it's all relative. So the, the best hitters in the game can to get to a heater. To they can get to one. 17's Leviolette. That guy's going to be a superstar. Yeah, between Rutschman, Larnick, Andrew Vaughn, who was at Cal, who's a big leaguer now, and, and Torkelson, he's got more power than all those guys at the same age. The only guy that's close to him would have been Torkelson because he put up the numbers and it became like playable. I don't think this kid's going to hit 25 his freshman year. He hit the road the other day, 506 feet. And he's one of those guys we were just talking about. He used to weigh, he said, Coach, I was almost 300 pounds. Oh, wow. He's down to 230 right now. He'll run a 405 down the line. Like he can fly. I think he's the third fastest guy on our team. And it's not, that's not an indictment on the other guys not being able to run. It's the fact that he can run. Caden, grab, uh, grab Lambert and Linder and come over here. Linder? Yeah, and Hogan. Lambert, Linder, and Hogan. So you went one, you went one, and then you guys didn't throw yesterday, correct? You guys are all available today. It doesn't mean that you're going to be used. Like, that's up to the coach's discretion. I just tell them based on your workload or lack thereof, you know, who can go. You hadn't gone all day, or excuse me, all fall going back-to-back -back days. There's a greater chance that you get injured if we run you yesterday. You know what I mean? I get that everybody wants to pitch, but based on our discussion that we had before, we got to, you know, well, it, it's not that. It's just like, just reverse the roles. Yes, like, let's say that, that he threw the day before and didn't, didn't work the way he wanted to. And he says, hey, can I, can I throw? Can I get up there? And, but it's your day to throw. And I said, well, yeah, you know what? We'll let you throw and you're not going to. So, understand. you know, it's just sometimes the, the, the heat of, of the, the emotions or the timing of those things. And, you know, stay down here. You've been here for a year now. You need to stay down here when your team's going. You don't go back down into the deal. Yes, sir. Clear on that? Well, no, I mean, you stay in the dugout and do what you do. I'm just saying, like, he was the last guy available for his team. Yeah. So he didn't need to go down in the dugout because if something got sideways, they may have said, hey, man, now's your time to go. So prepare yourselves accordingly. And then if you don't go, then what we'll do is we'll slide some of you guys to Tuesday. And then 
we'll go in that sense. So I've got some all okay, alter coach. alternate plans in there for you guys to go, okay? Jace, remember that you can use the PBC if you need to stabilize anything too. Or you can use the big one for the shoulders to turn. Max, we're gonna put more time into this, especially when Isaac gets back. We talked about some things with Mac, just that we wanna kind of maybe invest a little bit more time and attention into some of those things. And we're gonna add some of those club holds back into the routine and maybe spend more time with the actual like throwing components and peel ourselves away from the mound for a little bit until we really get those things nailed down. Okay. So not no more. Well, sometimes there's a chance to get up there and like sample it and see where we're at with some things. And I think that we're better served to do these other things to really build a, a better base. We needed to get a snapshot based on the time that you were away from it. So now we've got an idea and good. Now we, we put it back to work. It's the same thing for every guy, even him. Like the last time he threw, what are some of the adjustments that we need to make? Everybody's plan is different, even though we're all operating within the same kind of constructs. Tuck, you ready to roll today? Did you make sense of that video that I sent you now? A little bit better based on our discussion? If you can keep yourself grounded and focus on keeping that in the ground as opposed to getting off of it. And think of anything that you're trying to do where you're creating force and you're just on one leg. It's not gonna work so well, is it? So when you keep both of them in the ground, you're not gonna get yourself so taken apart because yeah, we're gonna work to expand, but then we have to work to contract and bring yourself back together so that you can rotate with some force. So if you're grounded, you got a better chance to do that. Yes, if you're on one leg, how are you gonna pull everything back together? Pretty difficult. Yeah. Let's roll today. Play round two with what we were talking about with moving on the other side of that uh, rubber. Seeing if that, just, you can do some ball flight stuff when you're playing catch, even if you want to after your long toss out here, come back in and just do a little short box, see how that feels. Coach Yeski, their movement prep with the Corvillo, they got a certain amount they got to get in, or is it just on their own? Uh, we give them a handful of things that they can do, um, just as like a baseline starting point. And then after that, we try to identify maybe more of the, I would suggest you do this, with some of our guys that maybe threw earlier in the week, now they can get back up and simulate some of these things, and especially when we get closer to in season and we try to get a reliever up back-to-back -back days, the first couple of times that we're doing that, we'll get him up to play catch and then just have him do some movement-based stuff so his body's used to accepting that. As far as just the drill side of it, where guys are going early now, some guys will do three sets of 10, three sets of 15, it just based on their feedback, based on kind of our movement profile stuff that they're showing us in the athletic trainer's uh, room inside or in just a strength conditioning room of what they're grasping and what they're doing well. So some guys will do it more, some guys will do it less at the end of the day. Shadow work also? Yeah, yeah, a lot of the mental game stuff with how do you manage yourself. I think a lot of times, the more you're anywhere, the more you're familiar with it. So if you can get up on the mound and you can uh, mirror some somebody of the things. Out last night. Coach Box took us to the football stadium to see it, but we came by. You had one of your guys out on the game mound. Yeah, last they'll night. flip the lights on. They'll uh, they'll turn the music on. We've had we'll simulate crowd noise when we get closer to the season, so that it gets to be a little bit more chaotic and, and it turns up the intensity and the volume. Because if you get a kid that transfers in that played at a small school, or you get a high school kid that might have only had 50 fans, it, it's a little bit different when the noise starts going. 
how do you communicate with yourself, how do you communicate with your teammates, and how do you manage the pulse of the game. And the catcher's partially responsible for that as well, so anytime that we can attach a second guy with him to implement the ball being thrown back and just really yeah, kind with of... Your so your new pitchers, with your crowd, I mean, you can't really simulate that until they they experience for the first time, right? I think I think when you see that many people, yes, but as far as the noise, like when we plug it in, yes. you know, that's that's the closest we're going to get to it. Yeah. But you're right. I mean, there's there's some How guys How does that affect your new pitchers just as much as the opponent first time or unless or you've grown up to home crowd. Yeah, unless you've grown up around it, nobody's really familiar with it. We have kids that even uh, are somewhat local, you'd say whether it's the Dallas area, Houston area, kids that grew up not too far away. We've got a couple kids here that are, are right down the street where they went to high school. They've been to games, but when you put somebody on the mound and now they're in, under the spotlight, and it's you can see it from that. That's a different perspective from the crowd looking that way instead of on the mound looking that way and seeing it. No doubt, no doubt. It's kind of like uh, standing on land and looking out in the ocean and you think, wow, it's a lot of water. And then when somebody drops you out in the middle of the water, you go, well, I think there's more water out here than I thought. But yeah, when you look at a lot of, each guy starts out with just a base package and then we'll start to, to really identify what their needs are as they go forward. And, whether it be a guy that's got, I think you and I were talking about this earlier, whether he's got a driveline background, whether he's got a tread athletics background, an NPA background, try to familiarize ourselves with as much of those things as we can with coaches, make sure that the kids understand what they're doing and how that fits into our daily practice schedule, into their weekly routine, as well as their daily routine, and then allow them to do what makes them unique and makes them who they are. And see if we can't find ways to make improvements on it each day. I mean, how do you sift through all that? There's so much information out there. How do you sift through it? You try to empower the player. Because as a coach, if you're the one that's having to give the player daily instructions on every single thing, well, then the player's probably not making a lot of improvements. The player has to take ownership of their career, give you some feedback. You have to see some things, and it's never going to be perfect. We have kids that go out and throw the ball very well, and they'll pick apart one or two things in there. You try to make sure that they're not overly hard on themselves, but you appreciate their their awareness and their scrutiny of their game where they feel like, well, I could be a little bit better at this, and say, okay, well, then let's make that a focus moving forward next week with whether it be your flat ground sessions, your bullpen sessions, even just, as we talked about earlier, your, your uh, mental reps or your shadow pens that you're doing out on the mound just so that if there's something that, that you're measuring and something that you're working at and you have an awareness to those things and you're making it important, you're probably going to get better at it. We've got some taller guys though now, so we've got to figure out a way to add about two more feet onto that plyo wall. I do think that the nice part for some of our guys this year is that we've had some kids that are, have been with me now for a year. They know what my expectations are. They know what Jim's expectations are. They know what the league requires and now having been to Omaha they know what it takes to get there and what we try to hammer on with those guys is do the, the new guys know what that is are you doing your part to educate them on those things and then also where is that kind of dark beyond that you didn't experience you didn't experience the finals you didn't experience winning it so what do you think is going to help us advance that next thing and sometimes guys will come up with what they believe are ideas and it still goes back to the root of you can move get put that wherever you want. Is it right up right here though? Yeah.
So your guys... How well you continue to do what you do on a daily basis. Because everybody, and I laugh at this in all the sports, basketball, baseball, golf, uh, football, you see it a lot in basketball and a lot in baseball. When something's been not going right and they ask them, well, you, you know, you, you're shooting beyond the three-point arc wasn't very good for the last week, week and a half, and seems to really now be getting better here the last couple of days. What do you attribute that to? Or baseball-wise, you're throwing more strikes, you're taking better at bats, and your swing looks like it's, it's, it's tightened up. Guys always say the same thing. Well, I got back to the basics. So my question is, why did you ever get away from those things? And so our older guys understand that it's about winning the two to three hours that they're out here as a group, and then when they're back into, whether it's lifting before or after practice, doing their drill-specific stuff outside of the normal practice hours when they're spending time, investing time in, in those areas, is that <laughs> they're, they're finding ways to do what they do, but do it better. Do you have many guys journal? All of them. Every, that's a way to stay consistent, right? Find, okay, this really worked for me, and then they can go back and look and see, okay, this week was great. Yeah, and I don't even think that it's so much from the physical. I think it attaches the mental, sometimes even the emotional to the physical. When I was a kid, it was Michael Jordan. He was, when he was in the zone, you know, just shooting in the ocean, he was always going to make it. The zone is, is almost a unconscious thought process that goes on for a lot of guys where there's just a reaction to their surroundings and they almost default to what they do naturally and so again just try to shed light on some of those areas and let them default to what they're doing from a training aspect and let them default to the adjustments that they've been making but I what, what are those things chef almost because chefs have they call it mise en place they have their set ingredients that they'll lay out but it kind of puts them in the zone that way because that's their routine and then it's just automatic after that point. Same thing with, with performance. Like they have all these routines built up, so hopefully it just becomes automatic. Their performance becomes automatic. Yeah, we want the mound to be like the recliner at home. You know where your drink is. You know where the remote control is. You know where your your chips are. You can hear when somebody comes through the front door. You're just aware of everything, and there's a level of comfort that's in there. Now your opponent's always trying to kind of toss you out of the chair or, or create some conflict with some things. So. We will at times try to change those variables for them. We'll make them throw on a relievers. How often you get to come in in the mounds the way that you want it. So we won't rake mounds before guys throw their bullpens. Learn it. You're going to have to learn to adapt to these things. We really just call it kind of like when the cable goes out on your television and you get all that static and just going on. We can try to create that as much as we can. And so when we do, and guys get more comfortable with that, then when they get in the middle of what's a perceived uncomfortable situation in a scrimmage, they're not necessarily uncomfortable with it. Everybody use Clean Fuego? <sighs> yeah, I mean, just in different, different ways. We actually got a couple guys that will use it differently for their breaking balls, a couple guys that will use it differently for their change-ups. But the fastball, just trying to see if we can, can catch some some better ball flight, just some better understanding of hand position and, and some awareness to what it does. And for a lot of guys, never mind just the spin efficiency, which I think is probably the primary thing, which plays into ball flight, but now that ties into command. You'll see guys starting to command the ball better and, and throw it with more consistency to the side of the plate or the elevation that you're, you're attempting to throw it to. Your guys that are starting today, how many times have they been off the mound this fall? Um, generally, once a week, 
Uh, they'll have another session where there's a side session where there's a bullpen. And again, what are we working on? Fastball command plays at every level. Uh, some guys uh, need to throw the changeup more because they were a two-pitch guy the previous year. Some guys need to throw the breaking ball more because that's a pitch that when thrown right, they have success with it. So that might be what the point of focus is for that particular day. So, And sometimes it'll change too, just based on if it's a right or a left-handed hitter. Your plate's 45 and 60. Those were here before I got here, so. I know, I know you're, you're, you do a lot, that's why I'm asking, well, I you, stole so much stuff. These are the you. ones out here, so I've got 45, We've got 55, we've got 60, and then we've got, got 65. I'd, yeah, I'd love I it for it to that. be 70. I'd love for it to be even further back. Really? Because I think that it forces you to have to stay on the baseball for the fastball and have more effectiveness with that pitch as a result. And I think it creates you to stay on the change. It's helped a couple guys out throwing kind of like a deep slider, cutter, breaking really? ball type thing. But I don't... I prefer the breaking ball to be up closer so the guys know how to get the, the hand across their face and turn the ball over. He's working on picks to run at second base here with the mayor. Well, he's working on ball security. So if those guys at second base can get in there. Now make sure too, if I'm a right-handed hitter, I can see your wrist. You're better off just bringing your hands up against your body. Because when you lift your leg, where do you think your hands are going to go? They'll go to an area that you're comfortable and familiar with. So it's just getting used to starting it to protect it. Then when you move, there's not gonna be enough time to relay anything at that point. I think a lower glove too helps with better glove lead knee timing too on their handbrake. Well, I think that it allows guys to not get deep on their takeaway. I think at that point, I'm gonna move this. That I think that they have to, to take the ball out in a cleaner fashion and then it allows the arm to flip up and be on time. The other thing we'll do is we'll try to keep it, try to be conscious of time and just relative to what does that window look like? It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be nailed down on whether let's say it's 10 minutes for bands. Okay, that's pretty consistent. But catch play and some of the other elements, it might be weather related. You play somewhere where it's colder, it might take you five to ten more minutes of what you need to do. Versus when it's warmer, it might take you five to ten minutes less of time and you just walk outside and go, all right, I'm ready to roll. <laughs> but that's where I think you look at it. The majority of the players that you've either watched and have some background insight on, or guys that you've worked with yourself, aptitude, it almost can't be measured. And it's certainly can't be undervalued. I mean, you just are overvalued. Like you, you look at the importance of so many kids that have an awareness to what they're doing and how it, it translates into what you're working on. Their questions, a lot of times I'll follow it up with another question for them, knowing what they're trying to, to search for, but it forces them to think independently with Oh, okay, yeah, no, why would you ask me that question? And you try to just lead them down the path so that they get better because my dad does heating and air conditioning. My grandfather was a dairy farmer. My other grandfather worked road construction. I'm a baseball coach. All of us have the same task each and every day and it boils down to problem solving. So the more that we can help these kids with their problem solving, 
whether it's how to take care of my arm, how to take care of my body, how to improve my sleep, how to, to improve my catch play, how to perform better on the mound. Everybody wants to do that, but how can we fix those other areas that allow them to do what they need to do? But those with the awareness seem to speed up that learning curve and that learning cycle. Yeah. The two guys starting today, they have high-level awareness. Chris came out of high school. Brandon's a transfer from Quinnipiac, so you know, their paths are different, but their understanding of things are different as well. Their desire to learn are neck and neck. They both want to go there, and they both have some awareness, so the more I put those two together and let them compete with one another, play catch with one another, Troy, who threw yesterday, has played catch with Brandon a lot. Troy's had to help Brandon speed up to get to some of those things. It's actually helped Troy out more than it's helped Brandon. And the, on the surface, you think, well, it's designed to help him because he's, he's, this guy's he's worked out. He's clarifying what he's doing also. Right. Yes. He's worked at a, at a facility with a guy who knows what he's doing and got him helpful to do some things. But now when he explains it through the eyes of a player, and they go, oh, okay. And that's why you see instructional leagues, why Tim Salmon and Darren Erstad and you know, whoever else played for the Angels are back helping out those players. They've seen it through their eyes as a player, so they know what it probably should look like for those kids that are trying to, to get to the other side of it. Are starting catcher warm guys up or? They'll come down. They'll come down. Yeah. When do they come down? Usually, I would say about the last 20 or 30 pitches, each guy's a little bit different. Each guy almost has their own routine. No one gives them a little bit of something to do, but back to the days with Rutschman, he didn't want to play long toss with the guy. He knew what he needed to do to get his arm ready. He would come down and, and go through his little blocking and receiving drills, and then he would handle the starter for the last, let's say, 20, 25 pitches, call a hitter or two, know what he's got to do, and then go. So that was his routine. And so we kind of start with a base package for some of those guys. Clonch did it last year as well. Um, probably some of their time together. <laughs> he absorbed some of that. To try to get across to a lot of these guys that if you manage your time and manage yourself, then it just becomes you and what you do. So whether you're on the road, whether you're at home, whether it's day or night, it's still just you doing your thing. You script out their bullpen form then too? Yep. It's pretty consistent until we're done with the fall and then I'll I will change it and we will try to run it off and it's tiered so that if you have say a 30 to 40 pitch pen and you hit your number it stops and you find out based on where you're at like okay guys that are consistently pitching in the college world series have done this historically guys that pitch in super regionals they've only gotten this far guys that pitch in regionals have only gotten this far and guys that are playing in college that are on the team, they can only get this far through the pen. So it gives them feedback too, and it keeps it competitive. Guys will start going head to head a little bit that way, and then at the end, they'll know that it's coming down on the last couple of pitches. So that's the closest thing you can do to simulating a game where, all right, this pitch really matters, versus oh, I'm just kind of working on something. And I think that mentality is better suited for the off off season when you're not trying to polish up your game to get ready to go play. How do you know who still needs to keep going? So, I mean, you guys are about done. 
what factors in who's going to stay on the mound? I think that you look at it a couple different ways, but it it's all revolves kind of around two things, the skill acquisition and then how well is their body and their arm based on just health and strength. So if a guy is healthy and he's strong, but his skill acquisition is light, then he needs to stay going and he needs to acquire that skill. If a guy who isn't uh, very physical throws a lot of strikes and you go, okay, I think we can enhance his stuff by increasing his strength levels, then great. You don't want to be in that position where you're behind in both of those areas because now it's really hard to catch up and you, you got to pick and choose your battles where where to push certain things and where to pull back on the other. But for years, and I think this is the, the biggest trap that coaches have fallen into over the years, and you hear certain guys that are really adept to it, but as pitching coaches, you're trying to put guys in the right frame of mind and put them in a position to succeed. Trying to give them verbal cue after verbal cue after verbal cue is, he might conceptualize it different. It's important that he puts it in his terms, but also, if you look at some of the things and you say, all right, well, I'm telling him all this and he can't do it. Well, maybe he understands exactly what you're saying, but physically he just can't do it. Like his body's not ready for that. So I think anytime that the body, you can work on that, it's good because you can tie it into the mind. Um, but some guys, you have to almost try to forecast what their workload's gonna look like too. If you have a freshman kid at a high school or collegiate level that you feel like it's gonna get a uh, fair number of innings where like okay he's going to get 20 innings or what have you and you go okay you might be able to, to, to stay on that path a little bit longer versus all right this is a guy we think is going to throw over 100 innings for us and be in our weekend rotation you don't want to burn up those miles on those tires long toss personalized too yeah and on yeah. what they like we'll start out with a, a, a baseline and some of the guys are still believe it or not trying to go through this where we give them your distance to your choice, but on your own combat days, so if that's a bullpen day or a game day, they come back in 120 feet, two minutes, and you're, you're putting it on a line with some zip. Take a minute off. Go, or sorry, starts at 150, and you go to 120, then we'll go to 90, and so it'll, it'll be different for each guy. Um, again, based on role, are you gonna have a reliever that throws back-to-back -back days? Are you gonna have a starter that maybe needs to just get his wheels greased because you know he's going to be going for 100, 105 that day out in a, in a game. Everybody starts with plan A, but you know, I think everybody turns the page to plan B at some point. Very seldom do you catch lightning in a bottle and say, all right, we're drawing it up this way, and this, that's how it plays <laughs> itself out. So again, back to problem solving. It just there's no way to, to nail it down into this Baseball is. coaches are the best at problem solving. Well, think about it. In, in football, they script their first 20 plays. And so are they scripting the first 20 if, if they get the kick, opening kickoff and they start at their own 20? Or are they scripting their first 20 if they get a fumble recovery or an interception on the opponent's 10? I don't, I've never, because that, that defensive package that you thought you might see on first and 10, well, you just got an interception and you're on their 12, they might be in a completely different defensive package at that point. So to have something scripted, eh, okay. I think that's probably better suited for a two-minute offense. I remember being a football fan for many, many years and still am, but um, if you remember back when Boise State ran the, the hook and ladder where they had that crossing route and they flipped it and they wanted to run that play earlier in the game, 
And the head coach at the time said, no, not yet, not yet, we still might need it. And he was asking his players as they were going along through that process, and they were kind of giving their two cents and what they liked and what they thought would be good to utilize. And I believe even the halfback pass was maybe at the suggestion of, of one of the, the backup quarterbacks, like, I think it's there. And, and the other head coach at the time or the offensive coordinator is like, yeah, I, I think you're right. So it's just you're working the, the, I think the convention things was in together. Orlando that year. It always sticks out to me, the Boise State game where they beat Oklahoma. The convention oh, was in Orlando that year. Very entertaining football game. I mean, unless you're an Oklahoma fan, but yeah. if you're a fan of college football and especially Boise State, that was one that I think jumped out to a lot of people. They thought, what a great game. And had drama, had trick plays, which I think a lot of fans like. It had a comeback. It had a lot of things that if you can get one or two of those things, you're like, oh, wow. But they generally happen in the first, second quarter, or you don't see a lot of it bunched up in the last three, four minutes of a game. How much downtime before they get off the slope then after they get done? So we catch. try to segment it. We try to play catch, take four or five minutes, maybe six or seven, try to simulate it like an inning, and then get up and do some work, take a break, knock it down with a hitter or two, and then go get a drink and go. Because I think a lot of times guys will just do a lot of stuff, hit the slope, go to the mound, try to get three outs and set the tone for the day. And that's a lot of activity for, for a, a short amount of time that you're stuffing in there. So we try to segment it as much as we can. How do you handle your starters that maybe historically don't start off well on the first inning? Yeah, that's, to me, I think. I, mean, you, I look at Justin Verlander, that's always been, you got if you get to him, it's gonna be the first inning. Yeah, I, I think Nolan Ryan was the same way. and. Sometimes like some of those big big horses like that know that they're gonna run for a while, so when they open the gate they don't they don't come running and blazing out of there in a hurry. Uh, so we just we try to attack the mental side a little bit more and now it goes against what I just said where you try to script if you're playing a team you're familiar with or you've got a history on those hitters, you get a better sense of what they're trying to do early. You have some some back and forth and then you find out, okay. This is the plan, and if they execute, then you can get through it. And certainly at the big league level, I know that they know how they want to pitch certain guys, and there's some cat and mouse going on in there too. But for our guys, we'll just try to narrow the focus, make it more about how you play, not who you play, and then see if we can't, like I said, segment it and then let them go after a hitter or two down here and then go. Just the difference is from the bullpen of the game is, is the, the guy's not swinging. Down here, you know there, there, there's nothing that can go wrong. There's, there's no negative outcome, because even if you were to, to spray the zone and effectively walk a guy down here, it doesn't count. So how do you narrow that focus? you keep the double stand-ins? Yeah, for the fall, just to find out. Because a lot of our discussion, I've always wondered when I hear kids like, hey, I'm going outside to a right or a left. So we just use term arm side, glove side, and I've been doing that for, I don't know, 15, 16, 17 years, where it's just, I think that you have to understand, I'm gonna throw an arm side fastball or I'm gonna throw a glove side fastball. Sometimes that ball flight looks a lot different to some guys. There are some places that'll throw two seam arm side, four seam glove side. And if you have a guy that throws two seam to both sides, well, how does he start it? He might start it out different to each one of those. And, so it's important, again, that 
use these to give you an idea. Is this guy comfortable throwing to his glove side? Is he comfortable throwing to his arm side? Those dummies give me more feedback and hopefully them too, but it kind of forces you to be better with your catch play and focus on just the, the target, just the glove. Brandon's comfortable today. Yeah. It keeps him, it keeps him in place. Like his arm is synced up right now. Yeah. I'm just worried about the stretch. Like yeah. him we'll holding we'll find out. But that's the best I've ever seen him. Right? Yeah. The great thing, though, is it usually lines up when they throw it out of stretch, yeah. too. Like, they usually get to it's a comfortable spot. But see, this is a... This is I guarantee a, he's probably like that out of the stretch. It's well, he came to me last week and goes, hey, I've been working on this. I've been love, playing with this. I love the overhead. And so all I said I it to be... See, I'm on the other side of it. And just free, some guys need to be freed up with, with their own. Well, it helps their rhythm. Yes. I, I agree with that. And I agree. It just, not that I'm ever a balanced guy, but it kind of gets you over the back foot. And now gather. Well, he laughs at me because I'll do, I'll imitate like, you see Nolan Ryan get in there and look, and then it's like, and you come back. and It's just kind of getting your bearings, and, and it keeps you collected to the point where you're not rushing my only thing is, and, and you said the other side of that argument is like, okay, some guys will just default to everything lining up. My thing with younger guys that don't have great body awareness or rhythm is that this is so different than this that how do you pair those two together? But Hutch and I were talking the other day where you look at, there was such a flow and a freedom of whether it was Mickey Lolich or Fernando Mania and all these other guys that, that pitched, where Bob, Bob Gibson, Gibson. Bob there was Gibson. there was a freedom, and then over the years, as, as mechanics became a part of, of the vocabulary and the, the teaching, everything became more upright and more. That's why I like. This takes away. We're trying to hit all the check The robotic yes. part of pitching. That's why I love it. I'm a product of the 70s, so I go back to all that. Well, and we have a three-step thing that we do to kind of just help promote, like, where your body should be in space and time. And I've been thinking since he's going over his head, how do we start implementing that movement piece into that kind of, I'll call it static start position where you're a little more stagnant. I'll tell you the one thing it does for him is it keeps his hips underneath him. Huh? It keeps his hips underneath no, him. No, I love it. Because he stops here. And he can't be one of those deals where he just rolls out of it and goes. I've been a fan of Coach Yeski's for a long time. I tell him every time I see him how much I stole from him over the years. If you haven't had a chance to go watch his main stage talks at the convention, do yourself a favor and head to the ABSA website or my ABSA app and watch his presentations. You'll pick up multiple things you can instantly implement with your players at any level. Thanks again to Coach Sloshnagel and the entire Aggies program for being outstanding hosts for our Barnstormers event in College Station. Thanks again to John Litchfield, Jim Richardson, Zach Hale, and Matt West in the ABSA office for all the help on the podcast. Feel free to reach out to me via email rbrownley at abca.org, Twitter and TikTok at CoachB underscore ABCA, Instagram RyanBrownley17, or direct message me via the My ABCA app. This is Ryan Brownlee signing off for the American Baseball Coaches Association. Thanks, and leave it better for those behind you.